What the Actual Fork podcast is co-hosted by two intuitive eating registered dietitians, yours truly, Sammy Previtt, owner of Fine Food Freedom, and Jenna Warner, owner of Happy Strong Healthy. We can't stand diet culture bullshit and love keeping it real. Our mission is for all humans to believe that they are made for so much more than chasing a smaller body. We are also here to share with you that food can be fun and pleasurable again. Although we are medical professionals, we are human too. We are not afraid to share our deepest, darkest secrets and how years of our lives were taken by diet culture. We started this podcast so no human has to feel alone in their journey towards food freedom. So get comfy and join us for a casual convo where you can expect to laugh, cry, learn, and grow. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of What the Actual Fork podcast. Happy Thursday, Sam. How are you? I'm doing great, Jenna. How are you? (laughs) I just before we said, let's record, said I had a great What the Actual Fork moment. So I'm just going to pass the mic to myself and just rapid fire it real quick. Do it. As I was scrolling today, very minimally, because I was not in the scrolling mood, um, I saw a bodybuilder who was answering a question from her audience about like maintaining her look and props to this person because she was super honest. I did not have the strength to like go through her page and like look at the rest of her content. But in this video, she brings attention to the fact that at whatever lean body mass she was at for her competition, um, she felt like shit. She had no energy. She hated the way that she felt, she hated not being able to eat any carbohydrates. Um, she said she doesn't like the feeling of feeling this way and nothing about her, I don't know, whatever training program that has led her to be XYZ has made her feel good. And I just, just wanted to bring attention to that because it was an amazingly honest statement. Sucks that she's still a bodybuilder and continuing to put out that content. But she did bring some really good attention to the fact that like, that's a very unnatural space for her as a human being to live and for most human beings to live and it doesn't feel good. And I just thought that that was really important. So it was like a what the actual fork that could go like both ways, positive and negative. (laughs) Yes. Positive that she's saying that, but unfortunately it sounds like it's still so disordered that she says, well, I feel like shit, but I don't give a shit. But I'm going to keep competing. This way. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But that just speaks to the power of disordered eating and, you know, body dysmorphia and all of the things. I'm going to talk about a TikTok that I just posted before we got on that. I didn't see it yet. Oh, oh, it's, it's like flopping, but it's one of the favorite ones I've made. So it's, um, which don't you just love that though? But it doesn't matter because I, I love it. I had to delete it. one the other day because after like two hours, it had 12 views. And I was like, fuck me. Fuck. <laughs> don't delete. I actually almost deleted this one because it had a typo, but I was like, I don't fucking care. I'm not deleting it. It's the, um, oh gosh, how do I sing it? It's the, the, uh, viral sound that's like, I'll put the packet on the glass. No, no, I fucking <laughs> love that one though. I've been doing lots of, it's, no, it's like, um, I fucked up. I know that, but Jesus, like, do you know that one? Yes. And, and so I put like, I just put text and I wrote like that time in 2022 when I didn't use the word intentional enough saying that I don't support intentional calorie deficit <laughs> and, fit, and fit talk lost their damn mind. Um, and then I just, Wait, did you small. hashtag calorie deficit to get on the right side? <laughs> I did do hashtag calories. I don't know. I think I, I think I pushed out and I was like, I can't. <laughs> Um, no, of, <laughs> of that, but, uh, dear Lord, oh I just, my. you know, oh, I can't wait to see it. Just fucking TikTok, fucking it's... TikTok. But those are both amazing, uh, fun <laughs> things to talk about, but we have to get into our guests because we had such a great episode today. Yes. And so I want you to, to kick it off and then hand it over to me. All right. So today we had the absolute pleasure of interviewing bestselling author Brooke Heberling, who is unapologetically changing the way many people look at people who are suffering from eating disorders, addiction, and mental illness through raw and real storytelling. Her deep dive into the mind of the anti-hero antagonist Ruby Blue brings the hope of healing to those that need it most while breathing understanding and compassion into those who have helplessly stood by a loved one. Who has suffered. 
Brooke's words will seep deep into your soul and her contagious tone of self-acceptance breaks the generational chains that bond us to our misunderstood imperfections. Her debut novel, Protecting Her Peace, is bound to be passed from person to person as its wisdom and love are exactly what those who suffer in silence need to step into the light. And, and on that note, um, you know, we, we do talk about today very briefly in today's episode about the suicide, um, news that broke yesterday with Twitch. Uh, and so we just wanted to share to, you know, just some hotlines and, and some resources. If you are struggling, you do not need to struggle alone when it comes to mental health. So, um, there's always 911 for emergency services, but of course there's also 988, which is the 24-7 suicide and crisis lifeline. And you can also get help immediately at mentalhealth.gov. Thank you so much for sharing those. And this episode today does talk a lot about mental health and mental illness and eating disorder behavior. So trigger warning, there is a lot of that talk in the conversation of Brooke's story with a beautiful ending, Um, but it can definitely be triggering. So just throwing that out there as well. Hello, Miss Brooke. We are so excited to have you here with us today. Welcome to the What the Actual Fork podcast. How are you? Oh, I'm so good. And I'm so glad to be here. You guys, I can already tell you're going to be my people. I love your content and just the rawness and realness of um, of you guys and how I envision your uh, listeners. So I think uh, I'm going to vibe well with you guys today. That feeling is definitely mutual. And I'm super excited to just dive into all things you and your story and your book and your experiences that, especially in the world and space we live in right now, it's just so, your voice is so needed. But before we get into like the beautiful conversation, (laughs) Sam and I start every single episode asking our guests their what the actual fork moment of the day, the week, the month, the year, if there was something that in this life of diet culture that we're living in, that stopped you in your tracks and like made your head spin a little bit. Can you share that with us? I I have, I have like so many going through my mind, but the most recent, like what that actual fork thing has been this new um, hair, heroin chic trend that seems to be coming back, which is what, really sent me into my whole downward spiral of my eating disorder back in the nineties. And I'm, I'm feeling very disgusted and angry about um, the promotion of such disordered eating and such disordered thoughts and such unattainable. Like, I feel like we were on a roller coaster and we were going up and up. Like Gen Z came in with the wham, bam, and was like, you know what? We're going to let our fupas flop out. We're going to do anything we want to do. We're going to exist in these bigger bodies. And now here comes the Kardashians, like trying to take us down the hill again. And I'm like, no, no, like, stop. On top of people promoting and using medical insulin for dietary loss that people that actually needed to live and survive can't have it. Like, stop. I can't. Like, what the fork? (laughs) Wait, Brooke, I love you. I mean, (laughs) I already knew. We already knew we were going to love you. But you literally just, like, combined two of our what the actual fork moments from previous episodes. I know, Jenny, you brought up the heroin chic before, and she brought that to my attention. Um, and then I'm pretty, yeah, I'm, I'm positive that I sang the Ozempic theme song, like, on one of our twice, maybe, I don't know, Manjaro, all of the things. Um, so we are right there beside you with those it's two. Frustrating. It's frustrating. It's sad. And I feel I'm around, I'm a ninth grade language arts teacher. I'm around 14 year old, beautiful brains every day, all day. And they are not in the same mindset as us millennials and geriatric millennials that are still trying to like push body positive. But also if you look like this, that's body positive. And I'm just sick of it. I'm just like, oh. I'm, I'm, I'm disgusted with the downward spiral that I'm seeing trending right now. And it's just sad. 
It really is. And I think that's why like podcasts like this, books like yours, stories like yours, you know, just people in the anti-diet space, it's like so important to speak out and to continue to spread these messages. And so, so not only for ourselves, but, and, and the people listening to this podcast, but the future generations, we can hopefully save them from the years of eating disorder, disordered eating, you know, negative thoughts that we've all dealt with. So that leads us right into our next question where truly spend anywhere from 30 seconds to 30 minutes. It could be the entire episode. We we really want to hear your story. And of course, we want to hear about your book, which I know is probably tied into that. But tell us a little bit about you um, and how you got to writing a book. But what has been your personal journey with eating disorder, disordered eating? And I have a feeling you guys um, being new moms are really, and not new moms, but from a veteran uh, mom and suffer of disordered eating to um, where you guys are. I, I truly wrote my book because I went into treatment the exact time, Jenna, that you, um, like my kids were two and four when I went into medical kind of 24 hour care inpatient care of an eating disorder facility. And it took 16 years to get to that point. And I had wished that I had had an influence that I am now being to others. So I could have seen the possibility of how low I was and how high you can actually be. So um, my story really starts in, I mean, from, I was born in 1984, which seems like ancient now to other people, but to me, I still feel 21. So um, I truly had anxiety from a very young age and it presented itself in um, insomnia. I didn't sleep very well. And um, of course, anxiety and those type of words were not buzzwords at the time. And it was basically just told the parents told like cried out, let them, you know, just shut them in there. My, my parents, unfortunately, and say, unfortunately would literally lock me in my room at night, which then created an even bigger fear and all this anxiety that I was predispositioned for, um, that was part of my temperament, part of my DNA, uh, then just kept building and building and building as people around me was, were telling me I'm fine. Like you're fine. You're fine. Everything that you're thinking and, um, that you're expressing is false. You have a great life. You, um, are very privileged, like sit down, shut up and, and go on. And so I think a lot of times in, as in before this mental health was very, thank God, like brought to people's attention and paid attention to along with physical health, um, I ended up self, self-soothing for my anxiety by, uh, by using very, very disordered habits with um, purging and over-exercising, um, and that's how it started out for me, was when I was 15. Um, I did not share the same views as the people around me, and as my family, um, God love them, it wasn't disordered in the same way for them as it was me, which took me a long time to understand, but I, the motto in our household was, um, you need to eat to live, not live to eat, and I loved food. I loved Pop-Tarts toasted with butter and I loved cereals and I loved all these different foods that I would see people around me um, calling, giving moral value to like that's junk food. That's, that's bad for you. That, that food will make your weight blank. Your, that food will take your, your whole physique and turn it to this. And um, food was giving, given so much power just in that time period, in that space, you know, um, of the nineties. And um, unfortunately my mom was susceptible to all this 
type of diet talk. And um, I'll never forget her going to McDonald's, letting us play in the play place, and then her getting a black coffee and talking about how she would never. And, and that's because that's what was being told to women at that time period that you, you can never eat like that. You can never do that. And so that was what I was entrenched with on top of, I, um, met a sweet young boy and we were, um, (laughs) we were kind of connected for a, for a good long time from middle school and high school. And it started off sweet and, um, perfect puppy love type of stuff. But, um, you know, as an adult and especially as a teacher that is around this age group of kids, we were acting, um, we were playing a part that we, that I was lacking seeing in my life. Um, as I was too young, I was acting married and connected with this, this guy. And we were 15 years old and 16 years old, but he had, um, you know, he, he had his own interests, which were definite bodybuilding and, uh, working out and all that. And I was a diver and I had to be in a bathing suit in front of, you know, I went to a school that ha- my graduating class was 777. So it's like, I was this small fish in a big pond that felt like I had all eyes on me and the kind of perfect storm of society and then the people I chose to be around and the sports that I were around um, just kind of imploded. And I said, you know, I, I like, I, I still want to eat, but I'm being told like all this is bad. So I had this like really unhealthy built long-term relationship with food and the right characters just kept coming in that ended up um, affirming my fears and my um, my misinterpretations of what nutrition and what food actually was for, um, not only bodily and nutritionally, but for pleasure as well. I, w- I grew up in a in a place where food just was not looked at as a um, it's an acceptable, pleasurable thing. It was more of a have to in a, if you don't eat in a certain way, it's, there has to be compensation. Um, and a lot of that just infiltrated. And I always like to say, I don't know if you've ever heard of somebody, um, talking about it this way. Like my eating disorder was a -a whack-a-mole. I was playing a game all the time. So I had these specific different disordered behaviors I like to use. And when one would get pop up and somebody would say something about it, I mean, it could be after a year of this behavior going crazy or even a few months, it didn't matter. I'd knock that one down. Another one would pop up. So, you know, oh, you're not, I I notice you're not eating a lot. I notice you're pushing food around on your plate. I notice that, you know, we, we are not enjoying meals together. Well, better start eating. So got to hype up the running aspect. So then I would use the exercise aspect. And when that would get to a parent and I would get called out on that, or my body would physically be breaking down, I would go to, okay, I got to stop running. I got to eat less or, um, you know, get rid of it in other ways. And it was just a constant, crazy um, whack-a-mole cycle in my brain that what I was constantly constantly consumed by it. Uh, I am also, uh, not only did I struggle with disordered uh, eating and a clinically, I guess, clinically diagnosed eating disorder, anorexia with purging tendencies, my purging tendency of choice was running. And I had a major, major running addiction that, um, that that was what almost killed me because my resting heartbeat was 33 beats per minute because I had so little, <laughs> I had so little sustenance in my body that my, um, that I didn't have muscle. I didn't have fat. I didn't have anything. My body started eating my heart. And, um, and I know that's kind of a, 
I feel like everybody in the arena of eating disorders and nutrition know that that's happened, but that's the biggest kind of thing. When I'm talking to people, they're like, Oh, how'd you die from an eating disorder? I was like, well, my heart was stopping. Um, my, my heart could not perform the way it needed to. I literally had to get up in the middle of the night and do jumping jacks because I could feel it fizzling out. <laughs> so I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions and um, that the medical aspect was really tough for me because I was being told like, you have to eat more, you have to rest, you cannot run as much as you're running, your body is breaking down. Um, not only did I have a heart issue, but I also broke my back and did not stop exercising. So I also had um, the this broken spine <laughs> and I was continuing to just overdo it and overdo it. So um, <clears throat> all that being said, this is a frats from age, you know, 15 up to 31. Um, I had two children. I was extremely uh, blessed to actually uh, get pregnant because I did not have a period. I'm, I'm, I believe in God. I believe in the universe. I believe in mother earth. I believe in everything is connected. And, um, I believe that those two children were meant to be mine. And, um, I'm, I still believe part of my healing journey of sharing my story is, um, is deeply connected with guilt of for a long time, I was a horrible human being to myself, which then in turn pushed off onto my two very young kids and, um, and my marriage. And it was hard. I got to the point where I was being, I was so deep in my disorder that I was looking at my husband who was drowning and not knowing how to help, not knowing what's going on in my head, me not being able to articulate it or being too defensive to even give it a space to be a conversation while I'm teaching a bunch of kids, also uh, trying to raise two children. And uh, I think this will kind of resonate with people that um, it was my son's daycare director that set me down and kind of gave me the ultimatum um, to tell me to go get help. I walked in one day and he said, can you come to my office, please? And my son was three years old at the time. My daughter was one and I had them in the office with me and I sat down and I felt like I was in the principal's office, like, oh my God, I'm in trouble. Like, what did I do? And, or what did my kids do? My goodness, like biting, like, why do kids bite one another? That's, I don't get it. Like, really? So I'm sitting there and he said, Brooke, uh, I wanted to talk to you about Graham's habits in um, anytime foods around. And, and I kind of looked at him and I was like, habits, what do you mean? And he started naming um, that he gets anxious if snack was, was supposed to be one thing. And then obviously the other classes got like they ran out of Cheerios. So now we're having fruit loops. He, he said little things like that would, would just set him off and kind of ruin him his whole day that he didn't, he was refused to eat anything other than the three foods that were in front of him that I brought for him. Although other kids were eating the school food, I was packing lunches for him. And I, and I told him, I started just tearing up and just crying. And he said, he said, why? He's like, I'm not meaning to upset you. And I said, no, it's me. I'm like, it, it's because of me, like that he acts this way and he feels this way about food because he is watching me. And I was just sitting here bawling in this man's office. And I, at that moment, I said, I, I need, I need help. And he was like, he's like, bless him. He's like, like, do you need me to call your husband? I was like, no, I'll go home. Like, it's okay. Like I, I just need, I really truly need help. And, um, and that's when I went to see a dietitian and 
it, there's two things that I think, and especially from an educator standpoint, good God, like have your kids before they go to college, sit down and go to a financial planner to understand the ins and outs of money. And number two, it's go to a dietitian because, and especially one that is, you know, not fad diet, not so disordered themselves that they're just projecting. Um, because, you know, God love us. We all get into this, these different avenues because we have a passion about it, whether the passion it can be healthy or not unhealthy, right? So a eating disorder friendly dietitian, a non-diet talk, and really like learn about food because, um, that's what I was like, okay, I, I understand that I need to change some habits. I also didn't want my kids to go through the same thing. Like I've definitely seen, obviously my son is showing these different aspects of disordered thoughts and feelings towards food, even at three years old, like what, what's it going to look like in 10 years? And so I was in counseling for about six months, still lying, um, still appeasing, telling her everything she wanted to hear, but then doing all the things that I was still continuing to do until one day I was sitting in my dietitian's office and I was just pissed. And she was like, what's like, that is like, angry is not your style. Like what's, what are you so angry about? And I said, I'm pissed because I have to sit here because everyone in my life that influenced me before did not work through their shit. So they pushed it off onto me. And now I'm the one that's having to deal with it. And she paused and she looked at me and she said, do you want Graham or Anna Blue to be sitting here telling me this in 10 years because you didn't deal with your shit? And I was like, shit. <laughs> like, oh my God. So God bless her, Regina Saxton. She's amazing. She, she just laid it out there for me. And, um, and I went and I was the oldest one there. I was 31. I was married with two kids and, um, I was there in this household situation with a bunch of you know, teens and early twenties and, um, God, I'm trying not to get emotional. It, it was one of the most beautiful and, um, heartwarming experiences that I could ever imagine. It was nothing. Treatment was nothing what I thought it was. And it really, um, it was the first time I ever had permission to just eat and not be judgmental or talk about it. Um, and it also put me in a room with 16 people that were just like me. And I'd never seen it from the flip side of what being Ed Face looks like, what shutting down at the table, what allowing a fear of a food truly truly does like like there there are foods out there that people think if I eat this I the, it, I will not survive and I was that person now seeing 16 other beautiful souls it's like put themselves down not nourish themselves not like see the beauty and the value that is their inner selves and it was it it flipped something in me of, okay, this is no longer about me. This is about these girls. I, I felt like I needed to be a champion, a mama, mama for them, the mama that they wish they had that they were talking, you know, and, and then I needed to do it for my children. And over that was in 2016. And now I can proudly say in 2022, I did that shit for me. And because I did all that, everyone around me 
is in a better space. My children have a mom. They have, my daughter is confident as hell. And to the point where I'm like, oh, honey, we've, maybe I've done too good of a job. Like (laughs) we've got to take it down a notch. So, you know, my son is thriving and just proud of himself for, um, for trying new foods and being flexible. And it has been a journey with him as well. And I just think every day, thank God I started when I did, because if I didn't, then, then I would have been passing on beliefs and, and habits that I no longer believe in. I no longer serve me well and definitely weren't serving me well at the time, even if I thought they were. And it just feels so damn cool to be able to say to my children, like, and I've been open and honest with them from day one. I said, mommy does not have the right mind and thinking about food and nutrition. And I have to go to school to learn to do that. And my family and my husband have been so amazing. And that has all built to um, this book, Protecting Her Peace. It is, um, it's something I needed. And I know that there are so many wonderful people and wonderful platforms and wonderful books out there. And especially tons of memoirs where people, these badass people have overcome these traumatic childhood experiences, these ups and downs of just living, because regardless, there's not comparing to anyone. Everyone's experiences, everybody's their own lean character. Everybody's their own person who is experiencing their issue. So shame on us for ever comparing any of that. But when I was reading these memoirs, when I was in a state of not healthy, not wise mind, my, my thoughts were, okay, that worked for them, but I'm different. Like they're like, I'm too far gone or I've done thought this way, way longer. I have like, it was uh, the comparison trap of like, okay, that would work for them, but not me. I'll just keep doing what works for me, which is disordered. (laughs) And I realized once I started to try to write my own memoir that that was not what the world needed um, from me. I am, (laughs) I have a lot of gifts and I have a lot of um, beautiful aspects to offer the world, which I do every day in the classroom with kids, right? But um, I have a gift in storytelling And I also have a gift in writing because I've been teaching people to do it for, you know, 15 years of my career. And my students inspired me to turn my memoir into a story. And the story is the aspect that I needed because as a literature person and somebody who consumes books and just as a kid, that was my escape. And as an adult, that's my understanding of the world um, and getting outside of my own head. So I decided that there needed to be a strong female character that struggles through disordered eating and disordered thoughts and addiction. Um, And then also being an older woman and not old, gosh, like thirties, but still there's so many accounts of children and, um, in young twenties and young teens going through, um, with their parents supporting them through this all. There's so many women out there that eating disorders are most prevalent in 45 to 65 year old women, And it's like, we are totally ignoring this because it's been a shame thing for so long. And that, I don't know, connected with your ability to logically think or that your education level or your privilege or your, it's, it's just eating disorder stigma has created us to think that women don't suffer. They're just doing their duty of being a good woman. Um, no, that's disordered. <laughs> There's no duty here. This is not like we, we've we come way too far. 
to just allow that to slip past us. So I saw a need. And so I created the main character, Ruby Blue, and she's largely based on my own experiences, but it is a beautiful um, fictional story of a badass woman that kind of goes from her current situation with her husband, that her husband has been, or hints at wanting to be unfaithful and going back and remembering all those different times, those significant times in her life where she chose disorder over herself and how she's not going to do that this time, that she's going to choose herself, protect her peace and, um, and not allow the world to break her because she's done it way too many times. So Ruby Blue is a badass. She's an amazing character. There's wisdom, philosophy, um, and everything throughout along with it's, it's raw. It's, um, it's tough. It's not a, a sweet, lighthearted read, but it's also one that will give people hope for just that recovery and like family trauma, generational trauma, the, uh, the core beliefs that we have instilled in us and our domestication from whatever decade, generation, or family um, trauma that we can't get past, like that with work, with time, with intention, and with valuing yourself, it can be done. You literally answered literally every question that Sam and I wanted to ask. Like, Sorry, I'm no, not. You hit everything. Like you are an amazing storyteller and you tell this story so incredibly. So I just wanted to start by saying thank you. I also want to order that book ASAP. It sounds very Colleen Hoover, which I am very into right now. Okay. Pause. Um. <laughs> can we can we talk about this for a second? Like seriously, because this is nobody brought this up and I need to. Oh my gosh. Number one, Colleen Hoover's writing is undeniably just addictive. Like she has this Stop. way <laughs> of telling stories. She has this way of building characters in dilemmas that is just unmatchable. I mean, she's, she's awesome. This is another reason I wanted to write protecting her peace, protecting her peace has largely the same type of drama and trauma that Colleen Hoover talks about in her books without the glorification of self deprivation. Mm -hmm. So, um, for example, in protecting her peace, uh, there are three different, I would call them, my kids call them on the chili meter, like probably there's three different, like five chili parts in my book that are a little bit steamy. One being between her and her, um, her college boyfriend, one between her husband and her when she is um, in the deep of disorder, and then one when she is completely healed. Mm -hmm. And it was important for me in protecting her peace to show the progression of a woman understanding um, her sexual, her sexuality on top of how to, to make that a priority in pleasing the woman and pleasing the um the partnership as a whole not just pleasing a man and like good job like i i got like i'm good at sex like he 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 thinks he he's going to come back for more right that's not the point of sex and that is not what i want to portray in my books and so many people that are going to gravitate and read Protecting Her Peace have had sexual traumas and maybe feel like they will never be able to connect with another human because of that disassociation or that terrible trauma that happened. And I was sick of reading books that didn't pay homage to that, like that didn't 
there are so many people out there that are going to read these popular books that have such fantasy, like, like fantasizing uh, different sex scenes where we, we need to start talking to children. And I say children, (laughs) consenting adult age kids that are going to be navigating these waters about like consensual, honest, truthful, fulfilling connection with a partner. It just can't be about this roses, bathtub, candlelit stuff. Like that's just like gag. Oh, I'm so sick of it. <laughs> I um I in I don't I don't watch um I don't watch Hallmark movies, just so you know. I'm more of the I'm more of the dark and twisty type. But well, I'm glad you brought that up because that actually, I feel like everything on the show, I'm like, oh, that reminds me of a TikTok. But it does remind me of a TikTok. I don't even know who it was, but there was an interview where they were talking about like them having a conversation with their teenage um, child or, you know, almost adult age and and talking about with the teen, like a sexual experience they had and, and what it means and and all of the things that you just said and how important it was. And she was like, uh, yeah, I'm going to talk to my son about this because if I'm not the one talking to him about it, wh- whoever does it first or where he ever gets that information, that's going to be the lasting impression and that's what's going to set the tone for it. So I feel like it's similar in a sense of a relationship with food, right? A relationship to sex or, or your sexuality. It's not putting morality to it. It's taking away the shame of it um, because thinking about how much shame there is with your sexuality um, as a teen. And and because again, it's not talked about, it's brushed under the rug, all of these things. So I think that is so honorable what you're doing and and how you weave that into the book as well. And I just want to go back because this was, this might be the first ever episode where you can't tell because I have my glasses on, but I was crying while you were speaking. And I think Jenna probably was too, because she had her glasses on. Um, and I just feel like there were so many different moments of when you were telling your story, especially in the the thick of the still newly postpartum time for me, just hearing you speak on being a mother and how your kids were, you know, at the pinnacle of motivation. But then it came back to you being like, no, I did this for me so I could give my kids, you know, this life or this relationship with food. Um, I just want to commend you and and recognize and and also for our listeners, talk about how fucking amazing it is that you are choosing to be a cycle breaker and how hard that is and how like, oh, that moment you talked about your dietitian will be like, well, then do you want your kids to be here? Like, like that moment is just so profound. And I think so many of us, you know, in these generations, we are fortunate where healing is talked about. Therapy is talked about, right? Mental health is talked about where I look at some of the the generations before us that it just, it doesn't mean that they're excused from doing the work, but they just maybe didn't have some of the same opportunities that we had to be cycle breakers or to really understand it and have resources for it. Um, so I commend you for being a cycle breaker because it is fucking hard and uh but it's amazing and well thank you and and um I don't know you're gonna make me cry it really uh I I'm if you want to know about my personality you have to read the book The Alchemist and The Four Agreements um those are two books that I think Don Miguel Ruiz wrote The Four Agreements it's on Toltec wisdom and it basically talks about four actionable ways that you can um, better your life. And number one is to um, use your words impeccably. So be very specific of how you speak and what you speak. Um, Don't assume, don't take things personally, and also always do your best. On top of um, Paulo Coelho's uh, The Alchemist is a beautiful story about a boy going on a spiritual journey to find treasure. And it's an allegory that has double meanings. But I'm telling you, um, anything you need to know about me comes from those two books are my soul with a little bit of Flannery O'Connor. That's that 
finger pointer kind of hypocritical call out badass that she was god rest her soul she died at 39 i could not imagine what we would have had from her if she had not died so young but it is it's not easy to be a cycle breaker but then again it's so freeing because like I think about my life when I was continuing the cycle that I knew and I was so self-absorbed and disconnected from everything and now as I stood up I'm not I'm not going to tell you it was easy I pissed everyone off in my family I stood up I I demanded self-time and it was hard. I had to go off of work for eight months um, as a teacher in a two-teacher household. It was not financially easy for us. Um, I had to work three jobs after I got out of treatment just to pay off the medical debt. And, um, And I did it all with a smile and with a hope because I knew it would get me to this moment where I could be sharing this triumph with somebody else because the alternative was I wasn't going to be here anymore. And my kids were going to be left to deal with all of this. And I love them enough. And I love myself enough. And I love my husband enough. And again, I just love, like, I understand now that this life is important. Like, I don't like not, it doesn't matter to anybody else how important it is. It's important to me. And it's important to my journey and to my family. And if that's all that this does, and that's all that me writing a book and and putting myself out there does, that's enough. But how cool if it helps somebody else get to that too, then to give that hope of, man, like I'm, I'm fucking down right now. I am at my lowest. And I, like all you can go is up. You just got to look at it, like change those dendrites in your brain to think the positive instead of the negative. And it takes time and it takes intention, but it's podcasts like yours and it's people like me that put their stories out there. And, and that's what, that's why Gen Z is killing things right now. And like the, (laughs) they're, they're going to change it because they have started to see the shift in the older generations and the older generations are jumping on board with the shift that they wish they would have had when they were feeling all the same things, but did not have the verbiage, did not have the dialogue, did not have the space to feel validated, you know, tools, right? Like it, it comes down to that too. It's like the understanding of coping. And I think this episode is unfortunately very timely given, you know, the news yesterday of the suicide of Ellen's DJ, DJ Stephen Twitch boss. And you have a quote in your, I don't think it's your bio in the form that you filled out that says, we are given only one chance at this one life. We need to fight to live it to the best of our physical and cognitive ability to live the life we deserve. And I just think that I wasn't going to let this episode end without reading that off because it's so profound and it's so meaningful. And I think it also relates so much to the message of, you wrote a a blog post about this that we'll link in the show notes as well, but it says, hate uncomfortable emotions, question mark. Here's why you need to embrace the uncomfortable. And it reminds me of, we talk about her all the time, but body image with Brie always talks about sitting in the suck and why we need to learn as human beings to feel and not jump to fixing. And I think that that quote matched with that article that I'm also going to read matched with like the understanding of just depression and mental illness in general and knowing that it might feel so lonely and so hopeless in that moment, but you don't have to be there by yourself too. Right. And I think that there's just so much power in those statements and everything that you've shared today, like, We cannot thank you enough for sharing your story. That's going to help so many people. And I, and I truly, um, I do want to put out there that this book, um, I also wrote it for, um, the caregivers of people that suffer from mental illness or addiction, because I can't tell you how many times that I've had people due to, you know, I, I was a leading contributor and social media director of Recovery Warriors um, for a good three or four years. 
And um, a lot of my writing and my developmental of writing is has come from that platform. And so there's a lot of my work up there that you can read as well. But the the overwhelming thing is that I would have people who knew people that were suffering that were their loved ones, their daughter, their spouse, their um, sister, their sibling, their cousin. And they would ask me, what, like, what do I do? How do I help them? How do I help them? And it's kind of why I wrote the book because the number one thing is just being there for the person and asking questions instead of having expectations and knowing that when they say that they're feeling this height and level of emotion or fear or, um, or fight or flight mode, that it's real. It's not just something that they're making up in their brain. It's something that they are physically and cognitively experiencing. And it feels like shit. And my husband um, was such, such a wonderful and is still such a wonderful partner and man in, um, in how he, how he has supported me. And this, this book highlights, hopefully, the beauty of what a caregiver can give somebody that's in the depths of their um, self-destruction, because what's on the other side is worth it. Like you're that human that you love, that person that you fell in love with, or that you saw the glimpses of, like that human is in there. They just need help getting out. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like we could talk about this for another three hours, but <laughs> sorry, we, I am not short-winded. No, and it's not. amazing. And I think by the end of this episode, everybody will want to know two questions. One, where they can buy this book and two, where they can get more of you. So if you could lead our listeners to the best places to do both of those things, I think we would all appreciate it. <laughs> well, my book is available on Amazon, Kindle, and Barnes and Noble. Um, it debuted at number one on all those. So please, like people are reading it. It's a wonderful story. Um, and I am very active on my Instagram at author Brooke Heberling and also on, um, TikTok at Brooke Heberling. I, um, I more try to take out my comedy side on TikTok. So that's more of the fun but also debunking uh, diet culture and and also just mom stuff. So <laughs> all of our favorite things. Oh, thank yes. You so much, Brooke. Well, thank you guys so much. And y'all's platform is amazing. And I'm just so humbled and honored to be a part of it. Guys, thank you so much for listening to another episode of What the Actual Fork Pod. We know there are a lot of pods out there, and we are so grateful that you are here listening with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, like, share with all your friends and faves, and follow along with us on social at What the Actual Fork Pod. We promise to continue to bring you the hottest topics, greatest guests, and the most fun you can possibly have while fighting diet culture bullshit. We love you, we appreciate you, and we will see you next week for a lot more fun.